jump in this morning uh, just by way of review. We're in the book of Ruth. And last week, we saw through the story of Ruth that Ruth and Naomi had come to a place of hardship, a place of desperation, a place of grief, mourning. And that hardship had driven them to repentance. Remember, that was the theme from last week was the return from leaning on your own understanding back to the land of God's promise. And so we saw that repentance is messy, it's difficult, it's a process that's to be walked out over time. Repentance is to be done among other people. Repentance should be noticeable. And repentance is freedom. That's, a, that's the, one of the most outstanding things about repentance, is that when you finally remove yourself from the entanglements of depending on yourself, and you place yourself in God's mercy, that's freedom. That is true freedom. And that, right there, that heart of repentance has always been, and still is, the key to, to receiving justification before God in Jesus. It depends on you finally acknowledging that you are wrong, God is right, and Jesus is enough. And so, as we move into chapter 2 of Ruth this morning, you guys can go ahead and turn your Bibles to Ruth chapter 2. We begin to see that even though repentance happened, the hardship didn't stop right away. What you see is Ruth and Naomi return to the land of promise. They return to Bethlehem, which is the house of bread, right? Yet they still don't have food. They return to the land of God's promise, the people of God's covenant. Remember, if you've read through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, there's a lot of promises freighted into the land that they were returning to. There was supposed to be peace, fullness, security, safety, joy, rest. Those were the promises that they were stepping into when they returned to Bethlehem from Moab. Yet they were still in a dire situation. And those ladies needed God to move and act on their behalf in the present moment, in the here and now. They were stepping back into the promises of God, the overall covenant and promises that he had given to his people. Yet they still needed him to do something now. And so this story, as we move into chapter 2, is going to bring us back to where we've been the last two months. This mysterious, intricate relationship between faith and obedience and God's favor and blessing. This story is going to get right to the heart of that. And I think many of us have found ourselves in this exact same situation. You've turned from sin. You've placed your trust in Jesus. You've entered into his promises through Jesus. Yet you still need God to move and to act on your behalf here and now because there's a present tangible need that you need him to do something about. And so many of us, if not every single one of us, can learn something from the way Ruth handled that situation. And, it, and again, it goes back to the role of faith and obedience in God's favor. And so I, I titled it, just to keep in line with where we've been, Contending for Favor. There's something to do with God's favor in our action and effort. And when you hear me say that, it's like, whoa, where are we going with this? 
But, but let me just first say what I mean by God's favor, um, because you're going to hear the term favor tossed around very frequently, um, especially in, in Christian communities, God's favor and God's blessing. And so what do we mean by that? What do we mean when we say contending for God's favor? And I want to define it this way. God's favor is a relational concept. It is a relationship between the creator God and a created person where he is inclined to act and move on their behalf. So God's favor is a relationship between him and you where he is inclined to move on your behalf. And I want to emphasize that it's relational. (coughs) Favor is not the things that God gives, the gifts that he gives as a result of that relationship. It's relationship, not results. And it's his presence, not the product of that relationship. Remember when Dan preached from Exodus 33, Moses understood that he had favor with God. Yet what did he do? He asked, based upon that favor, for more favor, and he understood that the favor that he was asking for was actually God's presence to go with him in a very noticeable way. Remember that connection between favor and presence. It's the relationship of God with his people where he is present and noticeable and acting on their behalf. So that's what I'm talking about when I say favor. We're not talking about the things that God gives. And, and God does give things and resources to his people. But that's a result of the relationship. And, and so we're not talking about those results. We're talking about the relationship. And there's, this is a narrow path that you can walk when you're talking about God's favor. And the Bible talks often about people seeking favor. It talks about people finding favor. And it talks about people, even Jesus, growing in favor. And so... How do we become a people that understands what it is to seek God's favor? How do we become a people that finds God's favor? And how do we grow in that favor? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it out there that there is something that we have to do, though we can't earn it. But a, I was going to say there's a very narrow path when you're talking about this stuff, and there's a ditch of error on one side that would say, God's favor is the resources that he brings to you. It's the status that he brings to you. It's the stuff. And you hear this a lot. This is what we talk about when we say the, the, the words prosperity gospel. Prosperity, bo- prosperity gospel is saying that God's favor is wealth and riches and, and status in society and influence and power. That's what prosperity gospel is, is that you're trying to pursue that stuff. But on the other side of the path, There's another ditch of error that would say the only favor that we receive from God is everything that Christ won through the atonement, through his resurrection, and through his ascension. And it never grows or decreases. It's just just there waiting for us in heaven. But the error of believing that is that you become immobile. You become a person who just sits still and you, you convince yourself there's no, there's no way that God's favor can increase on me in this situation. So I'm just going to sit here, and I'm just going to tough it out until I die, and I get to heaven, and then I get God's favor. Both of those aren't entirely true, but they're not entirely false either. That, that's how Satan deceives his people, as he takes a little bit of truth, 
and he mixes it with a little bit of falsehood until you believe it, and then you base your life upon that half-truth. So what does the Bible say specifically in the book of Ruth about seeking God's favor, finding his favor, and growing in his favor? How do we understand that? So go ahead and and look at Ruth chapter 2. First of all, the first lesson that we're going to see from this part of Ruth is that those who would seek God's favor rightly must be motivated by humility to contend for that favor. Notice, must be motivated by humility to contend for it. That all goes together. You can't chop it in half and separate it. Humility and contending go together. Look at Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. Actually, I'll start in chapter 1. It says, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. I just want you to notice the way the the text describes Boaz. Just pay attention to the the language used to describe Boaz and see if it reminds you of anybody. He's a man who is worthy. And the language here indicates that he's a man of moral worth. He's a man of valor. He's a man of status. He's a man of influence. That's Boaz. So there's this relative named Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite, verse 2, said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And Naomi said to her, Go, my daughter. So right here from the start, you see Ruth acknowledging that she needs favor. They returned to Bethlehem, and they were still desperate. And she realized that she needed favor. And so in that situation, even as Dan was, man, everything that was said this morning already is stuff that's directly in line with this sermon. Many of you are in desperation. Ruth and Naomi were in desperation. And so what do you do when you're in a desperate place? You have to start with what you know about God. And so here's Ruth. There's a lot you kind of have to read in between the lines. There's a relative, and now Ruth is coming up with a plan. So what she did in that moment, she was desperate, and so she she said to herself, what do I know about God so far that we can find favor? And so apparently she had learned from Naomi, because remember, Ruth wasn't from Bethlehem. She was not an Israelite. She didn't necessarily know all the laws of the people. But apparently she had learned from Naomi that in Leviticus chapter 19, Leviticus 23, and Deuteronomy 24, in the ancient laws of the Israelite people, God had actually made a provision for them for this exact situation. God had commanded his people when they came into the promised land, when you harvest your grain, do not clean the fields bare. He said, leave the edges, and if you drop anything, don't go back to get it. Because I want the widow, the fatherless, and the sojourner, the foreigner, to have something to eat. And it's interesting, if you look at that text in Numbers and Deuteronomy, the reasoning that God gives for that provision 
is simply because I am the Lord your God. So I want you to be less productive so that others who are in need might be provided for because I am your God. And so apparently Ruth had learned this about God. We don't know how much she knew about Yahweh at this point, but she knew, remember from chapter 1, she knew that the Lord had visited his people in Bethlehem by bringing food, and she knew that there was this provision. And so she says, let me go to the field and glean. That's what gleaning is. It's following after those who are harvesting and collecting what has been dropped and what has been left behind. And this is just like a side note, um, but I love some tongue-in-cheek. Um, if, you, if you guys know anybody who gets worked up about the politics of welfare for immigrants, just read Leviticus 19.23 and Deuteronomy 24. Stick that little nugget in your back pocket. Um, because the Lord is concerned about the welfare of people who don't deserve what they're getting. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Um, so Ruth started with what she knew about God. She started with this law that he had set aside to make provision for people in need. And what does she do after she comes up with this plan? She presents the plan to Naomi. She says, I'm going to go into the field and I'm going to glean after the harvesters. But what does she do? What, a, what is a plan worth if you don't carry it out? Right? What's the purpose of intending to do something if you don't actually do it? See, not only did she come up with a plan, but then she took action based on that plan. And this plan, man, again, this is you have to read in between the lines and think through this to get this because the story just kind of glosses past it. But think about the reality of that plan. Think about what it would take for this woman to go into the fields. This action or this plan that she then stepped into action was a plan that put herself in an incredibly vulnerable situation. She's basically saying to her mother-in-law, let me risk everything I have so that I can try to get some food for us. Let me risk it all. This plan was entirely based on faith, right? And even at, as you look at verse 2, not only was it based on faith that God would provide through this provision that, that he had given to his people, but she has faith that she's going to find favor. She's recognizing right from the start that she's going out to work to find favor. Think about that. She's going to work not to earn wages, but to find favor. But Ruth didn't stop at just stepping into her plan with one step, right? Look at verse 3. After Naomi says, go, my daughter, she blesses the plan. It says, Ruth set out <coughs> and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. She had the intention and purpose. She had the plan. She stepped out into action. She went, and then she got to work. So there's contending going on here. She understands that she needs favor, and she steps out in faith and risk, putting herself in a vulnerable, vulnerable position, and then she works hard. She doesn't just stop after she realizes how hard it is. She actually carries forward, pushes through the difficulty of gleaning in a field. And think about this. You're, 
you're working in the hot sun, you'd be bending over for hours, picking up things from the dirt, and then you got to carry the stuff you collect, because if you go set it off on the side, side, somebody could take it, right? So you have to carry with you all these bags of the grain you're collecting. You're going to get thirsty. If you want to get a drink, you're going to have to walk to who knows where the well is to get water for yourself, because if you're in this position, you don't have people working for you, getting you water. You're doing it all for yourself. Think about the, the amount of labor that's going into this so that she might find favor. But not only was it hard work, think about the humility that had to go into this decision to carry out this plan. Think about, remember what Dan said about the land of Moab, and even in Deuteronomy chapter 23, before you read of this plan for people from other lands to be able to glean in the fields, God says, I don't want any men from Moab in my assembly because of their wickedness. That's how God felt about the people from Moab. And so here's this young lady from Moab coming into Bethlehem for the first time. She's from the forbidden land, and the text reminds us again and again. It says, so Naomi returned from Moab with Ruth, her Moabite daughter-in-law. And here's Ruth, the Moabite, going into the fields. It's keeping that fresh in our minds that there's this girl who is from the forbidden land. She's a newcomer in town. She's a widow. And she was a widow who didn't have children. So before all the women who she would be stepping into the fields with, she is filled with shame upon shame. She's an outsider, an outcast, and I guarantee you she would have been treated that way by some, if not all. And then there's the men. Think about this. In, the, in an ancient culture where women were not valued as equal, here's this girl and all these guys working in the field, you can only imagine they all wanted to take advantage of this girl who had no one to defend her. Ruth had a home. She had a husband. She had a, a family in Moab, and she lost it all. And here she is in Bethlehem in this foreign land saying, I have to step into this situation which was created specifically for the poor. Think about that. Think about the humility that it takes to put yourself in that situation. She came from having at least something to having nothing and being an outcast and then saying, I'm going to step into that role of being the poor, being the widow, being the outcast, the foreigner. I'm going to step into that and I'm going to get to work. Imagine if you had a home and a spouse and you lost it all and you ended up in a new city with nothing and you had to go to a, a homeless shelter and line up and ask for a bed. That's, that's kind of where this is leading us to, to believe the amount of humility that took place. But it doesn't really say that. It, you just have to gather that from reading this text. Ruth put herself in a situation where she was among the neediest of the needy. And she wasn't ashamed to do that. She jumped right into it because her heart was humble. And so what does scripture say about this type of heart? If you remember Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus said that blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Ruth was a woman who became poor in spirit. 
And this idea of being poor in spirit is the realization that you are completely powerless in the situation and that God is the one who's in control and then acknowledging that reality. If you don't recognize that and acknowledge it, then you're not poor in spirit. If you think that you have any sense of control in in the situation, you're not poor in spirit. And Jesus says, the ones who are poor in spirit will inherit the kingdom of heaven. It's acknowledging your insufficiency in the situation and God's complete sufficiency and control. And so Ruth is poor in spirit and she puts herself out there to contend for favor from whoever might be willing to give it. She doesn't even know who is going to give her favor. And this right here is the distinction. When you talk about that path between prosperity gospel and what the Bible says about this, it's this point right here that gets to the crux of the matter, is that she did not step out into the fields to labor to earn something from God or somebody else. She stepped out into the fields, understanding that she had nothing, she could do nothing, that only God was in control, and that she depended on favor from whoever was going to show it. But she contended. You're not laboring to earn something, but when you contend for God's favor, you're laboring to demonstrate his worth to you. And again, there's this connection between faith, humility, being poor in spirit. They all go together. See, properly placed faith results in active effort. If you understand that God is the one in control who can provide, who can show favor, who can bless, who can be with you, if you understand that and you believe that, you really believe that, then active effort is going to follow. The book of James says that faith without works is dead. If you don't actually have properly placed faith, you're not going to do anything. If you have weak or misplaced faith, you're going to be immobilized. See, if you don't really believe that God is in control and can provide, you don't really trust in his mercy, regardless of what it costs to you, you're going to be immobile and you're not going to contend for God's favor. Think about uh, Hebrews 5, which Dan which Dan shared a couple weeks ago, too, in the same context, that even Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered, right? Even Jesus had to learn how to contend and grow in God's favor, right? By suffering through obedience. He was seeing and hearing what the Father was doing, and then he was obeying and doing the same. He was believing things to be true about the Heavenly Father and then making choices and actions that were based on that belief. But if you don't have that faith properly placed, or if it's very weak, you're not going to act. If you understand the reality of who God is, and your faith is properly placed, you're going to act. You're going to obey. Those things go hand in hand. Now, if you look again at, at verse three. So Ruth sets out, she goes into the field, and she begins to work. And she just so happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was that guy who was from the clan of her father-in-law. And behold, this is like if you're telling a story, you're not going to believe who shows up. Here comes Boaz from Bethlehem, that guy. He comes to the field, 
And what happens? First of all, again, notice how it describes Boaz. He comes from Bethlehem and he declares to his servants, the Lord be with you. And then his servants bless him. The Lord bless you. Think about who that reminds you of. But anyway, here's what happens. Verse 6. Verse 5, sorry. Boaz says to the young man who's in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? So right there we see that that Ruth was contending for favor from whoever was going to give it, and it was noticed. When you're a person who's rightly seeking God's favor, it's going to be noticed. Not only was it noticed by God, God had already been acting. He was already sovereignly ordaining that she was going to come to this part of the field that was Boaz's, and then Boaz was going to actually come to the field. If you think about that, this guy is a landowner who has people working for him to do the harvest. Why would he even need to come to the field in the first place if people are doing the work for him? The whole situation is ordained by God so that Boaz would come and notice who this woman is. But the writer doesn't depend on chance or luck. The writer who's saying it happened that she came to that part of the field understands that God is sovereign. Remember, Naomi and Ruth already acknowledged that God was sovereign in their lives. So this isn't saying that Ruth, by chance, stumbled upon this field. This is saying that God sovereignly was already noticing that Ruth had faith and was obedient and was willing to contend for favor. God had noticed that and orchestrated this whole thing to happen so that Boaz would meet her. When you rightly seek God's favor, it's going to be noticed by God and it's going to be noticed by other people. And so the servant explains to Boaz, this is the girl. This is the one, the young Moabite woman who came with Naomi from Moab. And she even came to me, this is like, import this into the verse. Even though she had every right to glean in our field because she's a foreigner and a widow, she came and she said, please let me glean. Let me gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she's even going out of her way to seek favor again. She's asking permission for something she already has permission to do. And she came and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Her hard work, her labor, her effort was noticed by everybody. Imagine what the women were saying. Who's this girl? Who does she think she is? And so Boaz then approaches Ruth in verse 8. And the second thing that I want to leave you guys with is that those who seek God's favor rightly will be rewarded now and later. Ruth comes, or Boaz comes to Ruth and he says, listen, my daughter, don't go, this is an emphatic prohibition, do not go to glean in any other field. Don't leave this field, but stay close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping in and follow after them. Haven't I charged already the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. See, Ruth set out knowing something about God. She knew that he would provide. She knew that she could glean in the fields. But she didn't understand all of the favor that God was about to unleash on her. She went seeking food, and she was rewarded with food, and what else? 
she was rewarded with food, and then she's rewarded with exclusive access to this one particular field. Don't go anywhere else. Stay here. And not only do I want you to stay here where I can monitor you, but I've already told the young men, don't touch you. Leave you alone so that you can work without worrying about that. And if you get thirsty, you don't even have to go and get the water for yourself because you can drink whatever the men have already gotten. That wasn't normal. It wasn't normal for the women to just go drink whatever the men had. But Boaz is saying, I want you to drink without price. When you're thirsty, you come to what my servants have drawn and you drink without price. Who does that sound like? See, the the thing about God's favor is when you contend for it, you don't necessarily understand what's going to happen. And this is why we have to reject the, the idea of favor being things. Because you might need something, and you contend for God's favor to move so that you can get that thing that you need, but you don't even understand that God has often a lot more in store for you than that one thing. And his favor is revealed incrementally. It's not just like all of a sudden God opens all the doors of heaven and provides every single little thing all at that one moment. That's not how God works. Even though... Remember, when you come to Christ, Ephesians 1 says, you've received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So you do have access to everything, but you're not going to necessarily see it in that moment. God's going to reveal that favor incrementally, and that favor, again, being his relationship and his nearness to you, because here's, here's why. Imagine you're walking on stepping stones across a pond. You have to go one step at a time, right? And Take the imagery a little farther. Imagine it's at nighttime, and there's only one little light over each stepping stone. This is how God reveals his favor upon you. It's incrementally. It's one step at a time. And when you take that first step in obedience, knowing something about God and acting upon it, what does he do in that moment when you obey, when he proves himself to be trustworthy? What happens in that moment is your heart becomes even more dependent on him. But this is why he reveals favor incrementally. Because if, if we just had the freedom to just walk across and know and see everything that was going to happen, you, you start to become confident in yourself, right? That's the thing about being poor in spirit, is when you have a lot, it's hard to be poor in spirit. When you're doing well and you have been given things, and you're stable, it's hard to be poor in spirit. It's hard to understand your dependence on God. And that's why Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter heaven because they're not poor in spirit because they have so much, they don't even see the fact that I'm actually in control providing those things. And so when you step out onto that first stepping stone and all you can see is that stepping stone where your feet are and everything else is darkness and God proves trustworthy, your heart becomes more dependent on him And it's not until you again come to a place of being poor in spirit that he'll unveil the next step for you. But again, every step of the way, you have to come back to being poor in spirit and having faith in him. And that's the moment when he increases favor and shows you the next step of the way. So Ruth goes looking for barley, and then she receives notice from Boaz. And then she receives 
exclusive access to the field. Then she receives a promise of security. And then she receives water. And you're going to see next week, there's going to be even more stuff that's going to happen. And she still has no idea that he's going to end up marrying her. She doesn't even know about that yet. She's just trying to get food. And she's contending for that favor, not even knowing what all is in store for her. Think about what Jesus said to the disciples in John 16. He said, there are many things that I want to tell you, but I can't tell them to you right now because you can't even bear it right now. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to take me going back to heaven and sending the Holy Spirit to guide you one step at a time before you know those things. So when you're seeking God's favor rightly, you're going to be re- rewarded now and you're going to be rewarded later, and there's going to be a progression where it's incrementally increased. But, again, it goes back to that idea of being dependent, fully in faith, and poor in spirit. And it's just like any human relationship. That's with favor, it's, it's not a foreign spiritual concept. It's not abstract. We seek favor with people all the time. And we don't earn favor with people, do we? You can't earn a friendship, right? It's not any different with God. See, God has revealed himself by way of relationship to us, and there's something of that in every one of us because he's created us in his image to reflect who he is, right? So when we, re- when we relate to other people, that shows us something of how we can relate to God, right? I'm going to slow down for a minute. When you are poor in spirit and you step out in active effort to contend for God's favor and he shows up by being near to you, look at verse 10. This is what happened. Ruth falls on her face, bowing to the ground, and she says to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? What did I do to deserve this? The answer is nothing. She didn't earn this. She didn't deserve it. But the way she responds when she receives favor, when she finds favor, is complete reverence, complete adoration, and humility again. It's a cycle. You step out in faith. You obey. You contend. When you find that favor, You fall on your face in worship and adoration because you didn't deserve that favor. You did not earn it. You did not deserve it. But it was so graciously given to you, and so you are thankful for it. Again, that's how we relate to people, right? In a good, healthy relationship, you go out of your way to notice what the other person loves. And then you make choices and act based upon what that person loves. And when you do that for that person, they, they find favor. You guys find favor with each other, right? And there's thankfulness, and there's joy, and there's friendship that's established, and it just continues to grow from both sides. Guys, that's what it is to, to seek and to find favor with God. It's ultimately friendship. It's going out of your way to seek the things that God loves, to avoid the things that God hates, to draw near to God and to put yourself in a situation where he is worth more than everything despite anything, right? No matter what it's worth, you're demonstrating through your efforts that he is worth more 
that he's in control, that he is sufficient, that he will provide. And that, when you have that heart of humility, that is when God shows favor. And when you receive that favor, you bow down in adoration. And the relationship grows. But then you come to verse 11, where Boaz provides the answer. How did I find favor? And some scholars would argue that verses 11 and 12 are like the pivotal moment in the book of Ruth in this story. I'll let you guys study the book and let me know if you think this is the pivotal moment. Boaz answers her and he says, all that you have done, notice that, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. How you left your father and your mother and your land and came to a people that you didn't know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And Ruth says, I've found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me. You've spoken kindly to your servant, even though I'm not one of your servants. Again, she's recognizing she doesn't earn this. She doesn't deserve it. But she has found favor, and she's so thankful for it. And Boaz identifies that she had done something to attract his favor. Though she didn't earn it, she had done something. And what did she do? She left everything behind and moved in faith to a foreign land to be committed to her mother-in-law and to find refuge in Yahweh. See, Boaz notices that Ruth is seeking favor ultimately from God. And she's finding refuge in him. And that is what attracts Boaz's favor. And in this moment, Boaz, again, reminding us of Jesus, becomes the agent who unleashes God's favor upon her. He's saying, the Lord repay you. Not me. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. That's the other thing about God's favor is that it's so closely intertwined with the favor of other people. Notice in 1 Samuel, Samuel grew in favor with the Lord and with men. Jesus grew in favor with the Lord and with men. There's something about God's favor that goes hand in hand with receiving and showing favor to other people. Boaz, himself being a man who had been given great favor by the Lord, then sees another person seeking the Lord's favor. He notices she's seeking the favor of the Lord, and he unleashes that favor. He is ministering the favor of God to another person because he's received the favor of God. See, Jesus doesn't want us to receive favor, and again, favor being the nearness of relationship with him in which he moves and acts. He provides things, he opens doors. He does give influence. He does give status. But that favor ultimately being his nearness, where we see him moving and we're dependent on him and we're growing in our faith. He doesn't want us to receive that favor and just keep it for ourselves. It falls upon us to then step out and unleash that favor of God on other people. And that's the heart behind naming our church Mercy Gate. That's our ministry, right? Is to be people who are filled with the Holy Spirit who then flows out of us to other people. That favor of God is the ministry of bringing others into relationship with him. 
But in closing, um, I just want to bring your attention to Mark chapter 10, verses 29 to 31. If you're rightly seeking God's favor, you will be rewarded now. Not always, if not ever, how you expect. But you will be rewarded now, and you will be rewarded later. Here's what Jesus has to say about this. He said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. Go back to Ruth chapter 2, verse 11. Boaz says, all that you have done since the death of your husband has been told to me how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people you didn't know. Jesus says, there's no one who has left house or brothers or mother or father or lands for my sake who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands. You're going to receive a hundredfold in this time. You will be rewarded now with persecution. There's the big side note. I'm going to give you a lot of stuff and a lot of amazing things with persecution. But that's not all. He says, with persecution, and then in the age to come, you're going to receive eternal life. See, we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and it's all going to be revealed in full in the age to come. But Jesus says, when you forsake everything, when you're poor in spirit, when you are truly meek and humble, and you leave everything behind to step out in obedience and risk for my sake, you're going to receive a hundredfold now and more later. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. If you want to draw near to God, you must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So, we have to personalize this because every single one of us is in a different situation right now. And in order for this to be applicable and meaningful for us, you have to put yourself, put yourself in the storyline and you have to identify what is the situation that I'm in right now where I need God to move on my behalf? <coughs> what do I need from God And what is he calling me to do for his sake? What are the things that are hindering you from being poor in spirit? You have to identify these things. Really take a moment to think about this. What is God calling you to do? And what is God calling you to forsake? See, We've, we've actually been created entirely to seek favor from God. That is our entire existence, right? God created us to be a people that is constantly seeking his heart. And he's created us, every single one of us, to do something for him in service to him. But we don't always necessarily stop to think about what that is. We like to lean on our own understanding. We like to do the things we like to do. And we don't always consider what God is actually calling you to do, which requires sacrifice and, in, and complete faith and humility. How is your contending 
when it comes to seeking God's heart, when, when it comes to seeking relationship with God? How have you done at contending for that? Imagine that you're Ruth and you step out in the field and you bend over for about 20 minutes and it gets hard, it gets difficult. Are you a person who goes back to Naomi and says, it was too hard, I'm just going to stay here? Because what happens in that moment when you give in to the hardship and you, and you go back, you're leaving all of that blessing and favor that God has, you're leaving it all out there. Have you continued to contend in the calling that God has placed upon your life? Have you pressed through the hardship? Because again, remember, Ruth sought favor and the hardship didn't disappear. But in the hardship, God became nearer and nearer. And that's the favor that we're seeking, right? We're seeking the nearness of God during the most difficult of situations. And how have you done at contending in that situation? And then lastly, when God has given favor to you, when he's drawn near to you and he has removed obstacles and opened doors for you and moved on your behalf, what have you done with that? How have you responded to that? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us answer these questions in our in our hearts and our minds right now. Spirit of God, would you bring things to mind, areas where we need to become poor in spirit. Lord, would you help us to realize our actual complete insufficiency, realizing that everything you've provided has been a result of your nearness, and everything that you've provided is so that we might draw even more near to you and become more dependent on you. Lord, would you help us acknowledge those things, help us to figure out the things we need to leave behind, and help us to identify the ways you want us to step out in faith, in complete risk and complete obedience, so that we might be a people who is seeking you, seeking relationship and dependence upon you, and not just seeking it, but finding it. God, we want to be a people that grows in our dependence on you because we've seen you move and act. We want to be growing in our faith because we've seen you prove yourself to be trustworthy, even in the midst of the most dire circumstances. So Lord, help us with that. In Jesus' name, amen.